Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined in the studio by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear and Mr. Mike Long. How's it going, boys? Doing great. Springing into action for this <laughs> estate planning draft. Oh, don't you? I'm lucky I'm uh, first pick today because, uh, you know, some some hints and spoilers in that comment. <laughs> You're going to ruin uh, my draft yeah. strategy, Jerry. I'm worried. Yep. I'm, I'm taking that first pick. You better believe it. <laughs> and yes, it is the culmination of our series of the snake draft of the CFP exam topics. Today, we are wrapping things up with estate planning it's been a wild ride boys and my goal today is just not sustain an injury because I'm, I'm pretty certain <laughs> i got it wrapped up so i'm gonna have a real conservative game plan take a knee uh, as necessary <laughs> excellent excellent so yes if you've missed out on the previous episodes make sure you go back in our back catalog and check those out uh we have five previous episodes for the five previous categories general principles, insurance, investments, tax, retirement. And now today we are going to cap it all off with a state. We are picking our go-to topics of what we feel are the most important topics to study in order to do well on the CFP exam. You guys feeling you guys feeling good about your teams, your drafted teams of uh, topics? Oh, great. Awesome. <laughs> well we're gonna put it to Power the house. test because after this episode we're gonna have the list we're gonna have our full rosters and we're gonna let the listeners vote on who drafted the strongest cfp team so make sure you head on over to biffbites.com uh, and take a look and vote in the polls mike adam or myself who drafted the strongest all-star team that you think will be most likely to get you that passing score on that CFP exam? Not to influence our listeners, but I do have Taylor Swift in my family box today. <laughs> just, just putting that out there, you know, hanging with the fam. Oh, just, uh, you know, getting those votes wherever you can, you know, branching out. <laughs> She's wearing it. EMH strong jersey. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, with with that, should we get into our picks, boys? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Luckily, I am first pick today. So I'm gonna go out strong with what I think is the number one most important thing to study for estate planning, just because of how frequently it gets tested on. And that, of course, is power of attorney. Uh, CFP board loves testing on this topic because there's quite a few to choose from. You know, you got your durable, your non-durable, your springing power of attorney, as uh, Adam tried to swipe it away from me in the, uh, the show's it. intro. <laughs> Dang it. Um, but lots of good topics to study in there. Uh, basically, the main areas to focus on are uh, when are the powers of attorney uh, active? When are they no longer active? You know, if the client becomes incapacitated, uh, does the durable power of con attorney continue? Does the non-durable power of attorney continue? Does the springing power of attorney spring into action? Uh, but basically, you know, when those uh, take effect and what they actually give you the power to decide. 
very, very popular topic. We basically see it on every single cycles exam every single uh, year. So do not sleep on the different powers of attorney and how they work. That's right. And that's, that's a, that's a solid pick. I was, I was hoping to, to set you off the track here, Jerry, cause that's a good one. That's a, it's one that everyone needs to have um, in their, their worlds too. So it applies to a lot of people, but yeah, very, very easy to say, but nice world. pick. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, and it's also one of those terms that, you know, even your layman clients are aware of power of attorney. Um, it's something that, you know, they know just enough to get themselves in trouble, <laughs> you know, like, Hey, I need this power of attorney. So I went on like legalzoom.com and I filled out this paperwork and now I have this power of attorney. I'm like, okay, well, do you know what it does? Do you know <laughs> when it, when it, when it works, when it doesn't work? And they're like, no, I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about a better yeah. power of attorney that better su suits your needs. Uh, is so it notarized? Yeah, is it notarized? <laughs> and so. it's real. I, I mean, uh, with, with all of my health stuff, I've filled out a million medical forms in, in the last year or so. And uh, it, it always asks, do you have a medical power attorney? Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, an advanced medical directive? Uh, so, I mean, that's real world stuff. Uh, it's not just in CFP land, but that's real world stuff that we all need to know about. Yeah, for sure. So that I'm snapping it up. Pack one, pick one. That is my draft pick for estate planning. All right, Mike, I believe you are up next. I'll give you maybe three three yards on first down there. Let's say a little pass <laughs> to the flat. <clears throat> I'm going to go a little deeper than that. Um, so you guys know me. I'm all about the bases, about the bases, about the bases, all about the bases. Know your basis, no trouble. <laughs> you got to know basis. You just have to know basis <laughs> for the CFP exam. You know, uh, what basis when a property is acquired through purchase, uh, basis when property is acquired by gift, and then basis when, you, when we inherit uh, property. It threads its way through everywhere on the uh, on the CFP exam. So my first thing just to point out is to, to make sure to study uh, the basis rules, starting with gift of appreciated property. So a, a gift is made and it was a gift that had grown in value <clears throat> over the years. So the basis to the uh, recipient, to the donee is gonna, it's gonna be carried over from the donor. This is the simplest one to understand. It's gonna be carried over from the donor, um, their adjusted basis and the holding period will carry over in that instance. So it, that's one of them you just, you've got to snap in and say, okay, when I see an exam question, what am I working with here? Look at those market values that they're giving you on this property so you can spot it in a heartbeat. Okay, I've got a gift of appreciated property here. And then you move on to know that we're going to carry over both the donor's basis and the holding period. And you can lock that one down and then we'll move on with some others. Yeah. And I'd even tag on to that. You know, I'm going to give you some free points, Mike. I feel bad for you. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to toss you a bone here. Uh, with that, you can also tag on, uh, you might get various questions on, should you gift this property now? or wait to leave it in the estate because that can be a very important tax decision 
uh, especially if, you know, the recipient of that gift is just going to end up selling that asset anyways. You know, it might be better to wait for them to inherit it, get that step up in basis and not have to pay capital gains taxes ultimately. That's a good point. Throw me a bone, will you? <laughs> you know, only get one. Everyone gets one. <laughs> well, I'll add, I'll throw myself a bone then. Um, this is the one too with appreciated property where if gift tax had been paid on that gift, it's uh, the the donee, the recipient can then use what's called tacking to attach part of uh, that gift tax paid uh, to their basis uh, mm -hmm. in, in holding it then. And, and so we create a real quick fraction of the appreciation that took place over the donor, donor's uh, holding period of that asset um, by the fair market value on the, on the date of the gift. And we take out of the, the denominator in that uh, gift tax um, exclusion. And on the exam, we get this question a lot. It'll tell you if they've used it or not. So if it doesn't say anything, use it. Uh, and then we multiply that by the gift tax uh, paid, and that gets tacked on to that donor's basis uh, over to the donee. That's been a standalone question as well for uh, in, in this category. Yeah, very, very testable, uh, certainly comes up. And it's one of those topics where, at least for me, I felt it was kind of a gimme topic. Like it's very easy to understand, you know, once you learn the rules, like it's not, there's no like twists and turns really, especially if you get into some of the more complicated stuff, like, you know, gifting lost property, that is significantly more difficult to, uh, to wrap your head around. But gifts of appreciated property, I feel that's just, you know, straight and easy, exactly what it seems like. You just kind of got to do the ba basic, uh, the basic math there. Well, I, you guys, this, these are, these are two fiery, fiery picks to start <laughs> things out. I was going to zig and now I have to zag. You got to follow and, up uh, with two too, because of snake draft. <laughs> gotta, that's right. Back to back here. Um, you know, the idea of, of gift taxes makes, makes this guy over here a little uneasy. So I'm going to put in my pick as the annual gift exclusion amount. Uh, mm -hmm. This threads through a lot of estate planning topics. I mean, you could see it just in straight up gifting between people. Uh, you could see it uh, tacked onto eyelets. When there's crummy powers, it could be gifts into custodial accounts. Uh, it stretches far and wide, and it's really one of the most important what we would call inter vivos gifting things that we have in our set of estate planning tools. So the annual gift exclusion amount, the rules are, has to be a present interest gift. And um, in the current year, the ceiling on the maximum per individual or trust <clears throat> is uh, $17,000. And it's gift free to or tax free to the donor, the giver of the gift, and the donee, the recipient of the gift, when you set these up properly. So they, it's very useful. The reason I, I zagged because I, I heard Mike talking about about that tacking on and the gift exclusion finds its way there as well. So uh, really important topic that you you understand um, how and when to use. And it even goes bigger. I mean, if you do have what we would call a taxable gift, your first line of defense to reduce the actual gift tax impact is the annual gift exclusion amount. 
All right. So just know if you have a substantial gift, that that's your first line of defense. Um, this is also something that I will be bringing with me. Um, my knowledge that is to my Thanksgiving dinner down in New Jersey, because each year I, I tap on my glass and I say, everybody, let's break. I'd like to teach you a little bit about the annual gift exclusion amount. And then I hand around my hat and it says gift exclusion amount donation here. Um, and I tell them like, it's tax free to them. Like this is, this is tax planning in practice. Free money. Free money. <laughs> just, just give me the money. That's it. Just give me the money. It's tax free to you. Tax free to me, baby. Let's do this. That's all you need right? to know. <laughs> IRS doesn't need to know. Do me a favor and pull me into Zoom during your Thanksgiving this year, or at least have somebody put <laughs> that baby. Oh, there. You know, it. it let, let's just say it gets quiet. You know, it quiets things down for a little bit, and uh, you know, I'm often asked to leave the table, but it's okay. Um, I just want I just want my family to know some really great uh, tax efficient transfer strategies, um, and for our CFP people. So annual gift exclusion, my first one. Uh, and, and I'm scrambling to pick up my, my next pick here around the, around the bend. Um, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. Have... I'm just picturing Adam being relegated to the kid table at Thanksgiving. <laughs> and yet he's, he still keeps talking to them about this. So what's your allowance? What's your <laughs> weekly allowance? All right. So <clears throat> eh, not bad. We still have some headspace. So listen, you, you put a little bit in the pot. What, how about you, Joey? How, what's your allowance? You Is it a gift Biff this beanie year? that you pass? It's a Biff beanie. <laughs> Just keeping it real, Mike. You are always. <laughs> um, all right. I'm just going to go. I'm going for it here. We're on a roll. Um, my next pick um, is property titling. Now, not not the uh, flashiest pick of the set here, but... <laughs> you, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm dodging the tomatoes. Um <laughs> property title. I mean, no one it, truly, this is like one of those this this is like the broccoli of, of CFP topics. <laughs> um all right, so we have different ways you could title things that belong to you. And the way that you title them is going to affect a lot of different things. It's going to affect whether that's pulled into your probate estate, whether it goes into your gross estate, whether it automatically transfers to a survivor. Uh, whether it's something that must be done with a spouse. And it also feeds into when you pass away, just how much is going to be included in one of your estate calculations, and then how much uh, that affects the all about that basis for <laughs> the people that have the uh, property when you pass away. So property titling, the our approach in the BIF program is table this stuff. Just this is one of those topics where you want to look for the similarities, some of the differences between uh, some of the categories. So we look at spouses, right? There's a spousal joint tenants rights of survivorship. Uh, spouses in community property states could use community property as their property titling. Uh, tenancy by the entirety, not as common out there in the world, but good to know for CFP purposes. Another spousal convention. Um, what's going into probate? Well, stuff in tenancy in common. Tenancy in common, I mean, if the Biff guys decided to go all in and get the hovercraft that we wanted and that we've talked about in our meetings, um, <laughs> we can own that hovercraft, <laughs> you know, in different fractional shares. And then if if I bit the dust falling off the hovercraft or into the fan, even worse, um, 
<laughs> the the guys would get ownership of of the hovercraft if I put that through my will. So it has to go through probate to get proved out. Anyway, property titling expect that to be put in action in one of two ways. Number one, um, basis calculation, right? Especially with joint tenants' rights to survivorship, spousal, non-spousal community property, and um, also calculation of gross or probate estate. You, you have to factor that in and just don't overlook that. So keep your eye out, especially this is one of those footnote topics. If you're in a case study, they'll often sneak that, that titling convention in the footnotes somewhere. Um, or it could just be spelled out on your case facts, but property titling, boo, but it'll be good. It'll be good. It's just like <laughs> your, your broccoli. <laughs> good stuff. And uh, listeners, stay tuned for uh, Biff Gator Tours, our new startup <laughs> business. <laughs> we'll be starting with this new hovercraft that we just picked up. <laughs> In my mind, I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Long, Alligator King. <laughs> For $25, you can watch Mike Long wrestle Gator. Oh, boy. All right. That's a good one. You're right. It threads. It, it, it threads throughout, and you got to pay attention. Uh, I believe it's uh, your turn, Mike. All right. Jerry teed this one up for me. You see, I think that was a very important revelation. Jerry's real goal in this is, is to be my holder. <laughs> he, he just wants to tee up and watch me drill him from 60 yards out. You know, he teed this one up beautifully for me. Thank you. Good hold. So continuing <laughs> with that theme, um, we're going to move on to gift of lost property. So what's that mean? Well, that means that grandma wants to, to donate that to the child, give it to the child, but it's not worth what it was before. It's worth less than their basis. So it's lost property. And in this instance, the basis to the recipient uh, is not known until they subsequently dispose of that property. They uh, sell it, let's say. Um, then the rules come into play. There's really two different basis setups here. So if later that recipient donee <clears throat> sells at a price that's higher than the donor's uh, basis, uh, then the seller's basis, the donor's basis is going to be that donor's. It's as if it was a, a appreciated and it was carried over, right? The uh, the donor's basis and the holding period carries over when the sale subsequently takes place <clears throat> above that donor's basis. If, however, they sell it at a price that's less than the fair market value at the time of the gift, then we have a different setup for basis. Uh, the basis will be the um, will be the uh, the value at the time of the gift, and the holding period will start on the date of the gift too. So it really, I think the IRS is kind of generous about this if you think about it in allowing that to to reset um, when they when they sell it at that price less than the fair market value. And then if they end up selling it in between, then there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Then there then there's there's nothing recognized there. Uh, in between that donor's original basis and the fair market value at the time of, uh, of the gift. So that's a lot packed in. It's kind of complicated, but the starting point on the exam is sort out first, do I have lost property or not lost property? And then you do have to work hard, I found, in remembering the matching up. If they if they sell it more than that donor's basis, what happens if they sell it less than the fair market base? As I've said for <laughs> hundreds of topics, uh, seemingly, I just wrote it out. 
just wrote it out, wrote that baby out on a pad over and over and over until I had a mastered. And I'm the kind too that has to separate these and do them one at a time. And and so master it. What if what if this happens? Mm-hmm. Write that out until I've mastered it. Well, what if they sell it below? Then what happens? And then eventually that just sticks for me. But it takes a while. Uh, and you and but then you can get it. These can become uh, easy questions if you get yourself to that point where you've clicked and can recognize very quickly what we're dealing with, and then what was the uh, price that they disposed of it at, and then you're on your way to these points uh, as well. I don't know, guys, anything to, to add to that? That's kind of a sticky yeah. one, that second setup. No, that that's great. I, I usually tell students the way I teach it in, in class is um, I kind of draw like a candlestick graph almost. So if you're used to candlestick graphs, if you're looking at stock prices where you got the open price, close price, so that makes that fat box. And then it has the day high and the day low and there's little like whiskers going off the end. I draw that out for a lost property where you got the high end is the original purchase price. The low end is the gift price. And then the whiskers going off are, you know, any sale price, if it was sold for a profit or sold for a loss. And you just remember if it's in that fat box area, nothing happens. If it's going up above, you're going to pay capital gains on it. And if it's going off below, you're going to take a capital loss on it. And that I feel drawing that out, uh, it, it tends to click for, for students. You artists are far more elaborate in how you remember things. <laughs> you and Adam can, are very good at this. Uh, Mine, I just got to write it. I just have to write it. Well, you know, it's a new Adam. infographic. Being, being border, just... borderline illiterate, I've uh, taken to lots of, uh, you know, hieroglyphs and, uh, you know, other ways Show me the to picture. communicate. <laughs> I like that. That that definitely does help. Um, and you spelled it out there, Mike. So you have, so in Mike's two picks, we have four different gifts and sales scenarios covered right there, right? We have, we have the appreciated property as one, and there we're learning about the basis and the holding period. And now you have the exact same thing for all three uh, lost property variations. That's, that covers it. I mean, you get that stuff down that those are 100% for sure. I'm getting the points on the exam. So study those up. So Jerry, you want to tee up my third one? <laughs> Yeah, just, 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 you know, just, I'm, or, I'm in maybe... your head, Mike. I'm living rent free in there, <laughs> which is nice because if you've seen housing costs, costs lately, yeah. I got to live somewhere. Well, you've heard of that open concept. There's, there, there's a lot of space to live in, yeah. in there, my friend. There's so much <laughs> natural light, so much natural light coming in. <laughs> Jerry, you're, you got the, the turn here, man. You got back yep. to back. I got back to back. Well, first up for my second pick, as you guys know, my pick two is always my meta pick. I'm going to try and game the system. And for that, I'm choosing GSTT, Generation Skipping Transfer Tax. Uh, And I picked this because it's a topic that most people, unless they're dealing with super high net worth clients, are really not going to deal with all that often. Um, Whereas if you do have those, you know, super high worth clients, it's probably something you're definitely going to deal with. So it's definitely good to know. But I would say for the majority of uh, people in the industry, especially younger people who are first building up their book of business, it's probably not something you're going to come across in your day to day. So it's very, very important that you study it now 
so you can get these answers right on the exam. And basically the whole idea between behind generation uh, skipping tax is, uh, you know, all these old rich folks <laughs> were gaming the system. And instead of giving gifts to their kids uh, and paying tax on them, then their kids, uh, you know, leave that money to their kids, so on and so forth, going down the line of uh, the family tree and the IRS getting their little cut every single time. Uh, these uh, rich individuals decided, hey, why don't we skip a step here and just give our money to our grandkids or our great grandkids uh, so that uh, we can avoid paying a state or gift tax uh, during one of the family branches. And the IRS realized that they were doing this and they stepped in and like, oh, no, no. If you are going to make gifts uh, to people who are a full generation below uh, your the you know the normal generation so grandparent to grandkid or grand uncle to grand nephew or grand uh, aunt to grand niece you know full generation skip uh, we are going to tax that as if you made the gift to the parents and then went ultimately to the children that is for in family uh, gifting uh, you also have to remember if you gift to someone who is not part of your family. If they are more than 37 and a half years younger than you, that is also going to qualify for a generation skip, and you're going to have to pay that extra bit of tax on it. And the way it works out is you're essentially applying uh, gift tax twice in order to make up for that fact that you are uh, skipping a generation. So once again, all of these complicated IRS rules come about because somewhere uh, along the line, someone decided to try and cheat on their taxes. And so the IRS had to put in all this complicated uh, rules to nip that in the bud. And the end downstream effect is all you guys have to learn yet another complicated IRS uh, procedure uh, for your CFP exam, which is why uh, GSTT is my meta pick for my pick too. Yeah, that's, that's a heady, very scary topic. Yes. Uh, but you gave them what they need, which yeah. is how do you find the skip person for yep. families and for non-families? And yep. I th I think that's all you need to get by here. Like we're not we're not attorneys. We're we're not making these trusts. We need to have the awareness of of who would be impacted, and and that's that's that. I'll add a little bit that the the top end rate for these types of transfers once you exceed any exemption on the GST side is forty percent. Yes. But otherwise, yeah, it's all about which, the let's find the skip person for direct skips, which does make it easy for calculating tax, because, yeah, you're right, Adam, I would say nine times, nine times out of 10, you're just going to have to identify if GSTT applies in the first place. And then if you get a bit unlucky and you get a more difficult question version of that, they're going to ask you to calculate the tax and like Adam said, because it caps out at 40%, uh, once you use up your exclusion, it's real easy to calculate. You know, you just multiply that gift by 40%. That is the tax that you're going to have to pay. That's, uh, that's good advice. This topic is, is so hard for most of us that studying for a CFP, it's so easy to run off the rails and think that, oh my gosh, I got to know about all these other things. And, and we really don't for the exam. So I think you're well on your way to grabbing the points if you get good at spotting the skip person and, and, and going from there. I think that's great advice the guys just, just gave. Don't overcomplicate this. 
yeah. even though it's an incredibly complicated topic to try to to try to tackle just grab a couple of simple things that you can take into the exam there were so many there were so many topics usually in tax and estates for me uh and some investment stuff that you know going in the exam I, I really didn't know a whole lot about these things but i just settled on i'm gonna i can tell you two or three things really really well about that topic but i don't know everything about that topic and it was enough and it can be enough for you too to not give up on a topic, just say, okay, what are a couple things I absolutely can master here? And for GSTT, you need to master skip person. Yeah, awesome stuff. Well, for my third pick, I'm going right into it. It is a fairly related topic as well. It is the lifetime gift slash estate credit. Uh, very, very important topic. Um, you know, there are certain numbers in the CFP curriculum that you just have to memorize that are going to be very useful for you, um, you know, throughout the exam. You know, some ones that jump to mind are like the self-employment tax percentage, um, IRA uh, contribution amounts. Uh, and then obviously a very, very important one is the uh, lifetime uh, credit. So for this exam, uh, for this year, 2023, it's 12.92 million. Um, that number does get adjusted for inflation every year. So it is going to be different next year for uh, those of you in the future who are listening to this episode. So make sure you uh, look up to see what your year's uh, exclusion amount is going to be. But it is just a number that you have to have to hammer home. Uh, the whole idea behind it is that, you know, all of us have $12.92 million of gifts uh, that we can give in our lifetime before we have to start paying gift tax. And then that exclusion carries over to when we ultimately die, because after all, leaving all your stuff to someone when you die is kind of like your last and final gift. Um, you have $12.92 million uh, before uh, estate tax kicks in. Now, a really common misconception I've noticed with that is that a lot of people think that it's two different exclusions. They think that, you know, you got 12.92 million for gifts and then 12.92 million for uh, estate. And it's not, that's not true. It's one in the same. You have one exclusion that you get to use while you're alive for gifts and that same exclusion uh, for when you die for your estate. I think that misconception comes into play because technically the generation skipping transfer tax is also 12.92 million. And the way that works, I don't wanna to get too in the weeds here, but the way that that works is they kind of separate out depending on who you're making the gifts to. That's neither here nor there. I don't, we're not gonna get into that today, but I just wanna nip that in the bud, that really common misconception that they're two separate uh, exclusions for gift and estate. They are not. You get one exclusion of 12.92 million and you better memorize that number because it's going to come up in a whole lot of questions on your exam. That's a biggie, Jerry. That's yeah. a real, real. And, and from our experience teaching this in the classroom, it does create a ton of confusion. So uh, for those of you getting getting closer here for this particular cycle, uh, put some time in because you, you need to at least understand conceptually what's going on there. And this is this is your second line of defense for for higher 
price transfers and gifts during your lifetime or through your estate. You get to use your annual exclusion amount for gifts during the lifetime, and then you could tap into this pool. And once you use it, you don't get in, you don't get it back. It's you've depleted it. Um, but it's a it's a great one, and uh, it's like you said, it it's unified, so it's all through one tax table. Top end here, once we're actually pay paying tax dollars and you've used all of it, is 40% as well. So uh, stick with this one. And um, and yeah, that was that was a solid pick. You, you stole my last pick. Thank you. For that. <laughs> this guy. This guy oh, over here. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, too, it makes it really nice on the exam. You know exactly when you're getting an exclusion uh, question because the numbers are like, Bob gifted $15.92 million. Like, oh, that 0.92, that, that rings some bells. That tells me we're, we're yeah. dealing with uh, that, you know, minus 12.92 off of that. That leaves me a $3 million taxable gift. So yeah. it really it calls itself out in the questions. As long as you have that number memorized, you won't ever miss it when uh, when it comes up. <laughs> Where can I find Bob? Is yeah. <laughs> Bob is very generous. <laughs> And, and don't forget about all your numbers in the in the tax tables for the exam. Yeah, I mean that's like week one stuff that you just have to you have to download those. I would print them out uh, and and just have them handy every time I sat down to to study because you'll see that a lot of the stuff we're talking about here is is on the tax tables, and you don't have to fret with it and try to memorize. It's just right there. Just know where it's at in the tax tables. Yeah, good point. Uh, a lot of those you, you just don't need to memorize. Uh, I believe the 12.92 is even on the tax tables anyways, but it's just one of those ones that's so important that you recognize it when you see it, that it is it is one of those few things that even though it's on the tax tables, you know, you still want to be really familiar with it. Yeah, just, you end up memorizing it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> just like the 17,000, you end up memorizing right. that. Exactly. 17,000. And that's another, you know, odd number out that you always see it in questions like Bob made a 10,000, uh, a, uh, you know, 10 million, $17,000 gift. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Okay. Well, they just want that nice, even $10 million amount and they're tacking the $17,000 on there so that you don't uh, mess that up with the annual exclusion. <laughs> CFP board's got to get up pretty early in the morning to slip one by Jerry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's it. I'm done, boys. So rest is in your hands. Mike, I believe it's your pick. <clears throat> All right. Well, I just want to do part of uh, this last piece. Um, the last piece being the basis in property that's inherited, but specifically on a couple of things that don't get a step up in basis. You know, most things are going to come through the estate and there's going to be a step up in basis. And, and, and Adam mentioned a couple of titling pieces that affect how basis works. And that could be a whole other episode really on, on the different titles. I won't go there. Um, but, you know, most things are going to get a, a step up in basis, except, and this is why I wanted to pick this one. You've got to, you, you've got to recognize your IRD assets, income in respect of a decedent, um, because those are not going to get a step up. A simple question might ask you to calculate the basis to uh, the inheriting party, and there might be two or three IRD assets on the list. Uh, it's a good uh, case study question where you can have a table of uh, 
you know, a statement of financial position where you have all these values. So uh, the IRD assets, you're going to watch for qualified plan balances, 401k balances, IRAs, annuities. Um, these are all going to uh, not get a step up in basis and they'll retain their original if there was any basis in them, which on those assets often there is not, uh, and the character of the income will uh, will stay the same, which in those assets, typically it's going to be ordinary income uh, when the inheriting party ultimately disposes of that property. So just uh, spot those and uh, and be able to get good at recognizing which assets are going to step up and, and which are not. And you should be good for an IRD question. Important stuff. Definitely something that you're most likely to get tested on on the exam for sure. Yeah, and a quick uh, IRD exercise, just just start grouping them, right? Just take a look at the types of assets that could be included in the estate and which which one's going to be the IRD asset. Um, but good two good points there, Mike. The uh, estate step up uh, for property in there and the fact that you need that IRD carve out. So I guess this is this is it, huh? This yeah. This is, I think I have a two score lead at this point. You've got one one position left. So <laughs> well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for four. Okay, I'm going for four here okay. because my final pick is eyelets, and and here's here's why this is this is a four a, a four pack. <laughs> it's because because not only do do I you know eyelets are are an important part of estate planning because we can take a higher let's just call it higher price tag asset off of your uh, personal financial statement of position and we remove it from individual ownership and we make this trust this irrevocable trust the owner of the life insurance property um, and this is especially helpful just like some of jerry's picks the round two round three for people that have quite a bit in uh the way of of their assets and are going to be exceeding that lifetime gift in the state limit. This could be a strategy that they have in place. So the reason why we have four tiers here is that knowing eyelets and what they do is not enough for the CFP exam. You need to know a couple of extra things. You need to know, is there a new life insurance policy or an existing policy that's getting transferred into the trust? And ideally you want a new policy that is written with the trust as the owner. So you have a brand new policy and that's placed that's in within the container of the trust. Um, that's good to go because now that policy is protected from being included in the gross estate. You run into a little bit of an issue though, if you take an existing life insurance policy and you put it into an islet because that clicks in that three year rule. Um, so if that, if that person were to pass away within three years of that transfer into the islet, that gets pulled back into the gross estate, it completely blows up the whole idea of trying to remove it. Uh, the other two variations here, funded and unfunded. With a funded islet, like we have to pay the premiums on the policy to keep it alive, right? And some people, along with the life insurance policy, say, well, let's throw in some income producing assets and the income generated is gonna pay the policy premiums and it's set it, forget it, good to go. Well, for some of that, uh, that automation, you end up getting hit with taxes on it and it's going to get, you're going to get hit at individual tax rates. Uh, so that's really not all that great. The better way to do it 
is to have an unfunded islet set up. So there's nothing else in the irrevocable trust for the life insurance other than the life insurance. And what we do is you'll often uh, attach crummy powers to the trust and we get to call in that annual, annual gift exclusion amount again. So you can actually treat those premium payments as a gift of present interest underneath what are called crummy powers. That's another CFP thing you should take a look at. Uh, basically brings a future interest gift into the present. And that's super tax efficient. It's tax smart. Um, and if you have one of those unfunded islets where the new policy was created within the trust, that is ideal because that way you're protected from it being pulled back into the gross estate. And for the premium payments, there's no taxes that are being paid out. You're actually able to transfer money into the trust uh, underneath that annual exclusion amount. But it is super testable. Um, I could see this being used in, in all sorts <clears throat> of questions. So it is one of those areas where if you have extra time and space in your study routine, go a little deeper into islets and get to get really comfortable with the the different variations and and just start to get your mind ready to see it even as a wrong answer option um throughout your cfp exam now and with that snake draft done and uh <laughs> i'm excited for these 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 votes here guys i want to see what the people think drop the mic <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if if you guys see my assistant on your way out, I've got some participation trophies for you that we we have made up. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my thank goodness! You. Oh thank my you. goodness! Get out of town! <laughs> <laughs> Just delivered an island four pack, man. <laughs> hey, I I did want to comment on on that from a practitioner yeah. standpoint on on this because sometimes. You know, students or practitioners say, well, "Why do you worry with that? Now, those are expensive to to set up and maintain that that trust. Come on, between between spouses, they've got over twenty five million uh, that 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 they can use. So why why bother? It has not always been that way, friends. In my career, I've seen that lifetime exclusion at one million dollars. So you had a lot of people that were into very serious estate taxes in my own life and career and islets were just everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and having those policies in there, usually joint and survivor uh, life insurance to payable on the second death um, to, to pay those estate taxes. So don't assume that it's going to stay well, yeah. at nearly 13 million a piece because it hasn't been that many years ago. It was significantly less correct me if i'm wrong is unless congress chooses to extend it i believe it expires in 2025 and it reverts back down to five million dollars or the six million dollars it might be with inflation but yeah if congress in 2025 does chooses not to extend the, that provision of the tax cuts and jobs act we could see a rubber band right back down to uh you know a five million dollar uh uh you know lifetime exemption yeah and i think we need to be mindful of that for clients with that are in the position that if it does change, uh, they're looking at, at estate taxes. So what work could be done now, especially in putting, getting an islet established, having the islet apply for the life insurance. And, and key there is it, the, the folks need to be healthy enough to get the life insurance, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the ideal thing, as Adam said, is to start with a fresh policy uh, inside that eyelid 
get it while they're younger and while they're healthy and start uh, funding that premiums through the uh, exclusion allowance because the, it, it very well may come about their life expectancy that, that we're back into big time estate taxes because it it's an incredible source of revenue. Yeah, when you're running big deficits and you start applying forty percent or more, uh, I've also seen that number much higher in in my lifetime and career. It hasn't yeah. always been forty percent. Especially uh, also with the the explosion in uh, house costs in in the past few years, you know, a lot of people don't even realize it, but their homes, if they own their home, uh, and the the uh, lifetime exemption rubber bands back down to five million their home's going to probably take up, you know, 20, 25% of their exemption right there. And then with just, just the property mm-hmm. value, yep. yeah. if you, if you own a house on the East or West coast, anywhere close to a population center, you know, you're easily looking at million dollar houses for like, just, you know, little two bedrooms that don't, don't, don't seem like they should be million dollar houses, but they are. <laughs> yep. So just uh, that, it, this is an excellent last pick because it's just, Hugely important for the exam, hugely important, even more important in real life practice for us to know about this stuff and to get started in that education process and solution process early on uh, with a client that could find themselves in this position. Yep. Well, good stuff, gents. I think that was a strong finish. Uh, And for all of our listeners, make sure you check out uh, biffbites.com we'll have the poll up there so you guys can vote on who you think the ultimate winner should be <laughs> until Does then get something a trophy do we get a trophy or a crown or uh you get a biff beanie you get a biff beanie. <laughs> yeah. I, don't that. I don't know we, should, we could do better than that we get some kind of traveling trophy the traveling trophy there you go, there yeah. you go. i like that <laughs> All right. Well, until next week, we will see you all later. Steady on, friends. Mm-hmm.